Hey, everybody. Thank you for joining me. Hope your weekend is going well. I do not have a long rant this week because I've been very busy uh, working on my book, which is about Russiagate and how it helped bring us this crisis in Ukraine. And what I can see right now about our crisis in Ukraine is that it's about to get a lot worse. I think we're in for a really scary period, even scarier than it's currently been. And it's not just with the nuclear threats and the exercises that are going on this week. Both NATO and Russia are, are conducting nuclear exercises this week at the same time, which is just wonderful timing. But um, I think, you know, the barrage of missiles that we saw from Russia this past week on civilian targets, I mean, they did hit civilian areas, is just a, it's a preview of what is to come. Because, um, you know, we've been talking for a long time about how Russia has not gone into Ukraine with anywhere near its full capability. And finally, I think it will be changing its tactics. And, uh, you know, that's why Putin has called up those 300,000 new recruits. And I think we're in for just a very ugly time. And I, I hate to make predictions at all about anything, and especially if, if it's one about such a dire thing as war. But that's just what it looks like to me, because there seems to be no interest at all right now in negotiations. Um, this week, uh, some Russian officials talked about wanting to negotiate again, but then Putin, a few days ago, pretty much shut that down and said, I don't see what there is to discuss with Biden. And Biden, meanwhile, said in an interview with CNN that he also has no intention to speak to Putin. In fact, the only thing he said that he would speak to Putin about would be the release of uh, prisoners. For example, um, the, the WNBA basketball player who is in Russia, uh, uh, imprisoned in Russia on marijuana charges. But Aside from that, Biden said he had no interest in talking to Putin, which is extraordinary. You're openly saying you're willing to discuss a prisoner swap, but not ending a catastrophic war. But that really captures the U.S. attitude. And, you know, on that front, there was recently this extraordinary line in The Washington Post, which says this. This is from October 11th, so earlier uh, last week. It says this. Privately, U.S. officials say... Neither Russia nor Ukraine is capable of winning the war outright, but they have ruled out the idea of pushing or even nudging Ukraine to the negotiating table. They say they do not know what the end of the war looks like or how it might end or when, insisting that is up to Kiev or Kiev. So privately, U.S. officials are saying that neither Russia nor Ukraine is capable of winning the war. But yet the U.S. is also saying that they're not going to push their side, which is Ukraine's side, to the negotiating table. So if you know your side can't win, why would you continue to insist on fighting? And, you know, the, the U.S. explanation is that Ukraine needs to be in its best position possible to be able to negotiate. Well, they've been saying that for a long time. And what has that gotten them? I mean, Russia has taken about 20 percent of Ukraine. And even if they've lost a little bit of that, they still hold a lot of territory. So is the U.S. counting on Ukraine winning back considerably more more territory? And if so, I think that will only invite a much more ferocious Russian attack. So I think this policy really is essentially just sentencing more Ukrainians to death on the part of the U.S. And I can't get why you wouldn't at least want to try to negotiate. I mean, maybe it goes nowhere. 
Maybe the Russians are so diabolical that it goes nowhere. But why would you not even try to negotiate? And the answer is if you just see Ukrainians as cannon fodder. Um, and that has unfortunately been made clear by so many U.S. officials. I've played the clip before of Lindsey Graham saying that as long as the U.S. Uh, uh, supplies weapons to Ukraine, they will fight to the last person. And let me play somebody else. This is um, General Jack Keane, who was speaking recently on Fox News. And this is what he said about uh, why it's great that we have uh, the, why it's great that we're arming Ukraine. There are people uh, in the Congress and some of them on uh, some of them Republicans who have always expressed some concern about spending uh, in terms of spending money uh, on this on Ukraine. But, you know, we've got a six trillion dollar budget. It's actually larger than that uh, by a few hundred billion. And we've invested and I mean invested sixty six billion dollars in Ukraine this year. And that's like 1.1%. And wh- what are we getting for that? For $66 billion, what we're getting is Ukraine is doing the fighting. They are literally destroying the Russian army on the battlefield, which would set them back for years and deny them the ability to ever accomplish under Putin any of his ambitions in terms of taking back some of the Soviet republics. And by the way, if that happened, that would mean war. With So according to Jack Keane, we're actually, by funding this war, we're avoiding another one, which doesn't make sense for many reasons, including, you know, if Russia has had such a hard time in Ukraine, failing to take it over in uh, the last, uh, you know, nearly year, more than seven months, why would they possibly feel that they could go and take over other countries, especially NATO countries, where there is a collective pact for self-defense? But that's the attitude inside Washington right now. And just all the developments point in a direction of just of just more war. Um, Zelensky, of course, has been saying he'll also refuse to negotiate with Russia until Putin is overthrown. Uh, Anthony Blinken's been going around the world on basically like an arms shopping spree, um, trying to procure weapons from any government that they can. He's gone to Cambodia, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Rwanda, Mexico, Colombia, Peru. Um, he's asked all these countries to try to, to try to get weapons that Ukraine can use, especially Soviet style weapons that Ukraine is familiar with. So that's what the U.S. is doing. And of course, you know, we have progressives in Congress who continue to say nothing and vote in lockstep for the proxy war. And and this week we saw one member of the squad, AOC, being confronted over that uh, with uh, when she was speaking and some people shouted at her and said, you know, why are you leading us off to a nuclear holocaust? And, um, you know, that was a very angry message she got. But I think it reflects the frustration that at least some of us feel in the progressive space and the anti-war space that, you know, people who we elect or who we thought were anti-war have been completely behind uh, the war in Ukraine, the proxy war in Ukraine. Not a single Democrat has voted against any of these measures. And so, and meanwhile, also you have in Europe now increasing demonstrations. There was just one in France today about the rising cost of living, you know, and people there expressing frustration about, you know, sacrificing their well-being, just for the cause, just for their leader's cause in Ukraine. 
And as the winter comes, I, I think that kind of social unrest will get will get much worse. So I think it's a scary time. It's it's a it's a scary time. And uh, let's let's discuss. So, Eric, you are first. Hello. Hi. Hi. It's Aaron Monte Love. You can hear me. I can hear you. Yep. Okay. Super. Um, well, nice to speak with you. I guess lately, you know, I want to offer some encouragement because just from my perspective, it's been so stifling. So how, frankly, how idiotic this debate is, uh, but, you know, it is just taking such a dark direction. But just this idea of, you know, performatively not doing diplomacy, like diplomats, like somebody like Anthony Blinken going around the world and just, you know, not even thinking to um, think that it's his job to actually talk to people who are the enemy, you know, um, otherwise. And um, in any case, uh, uh, I think of... Um, I wanted to get your take on this, but, um, you know, people, the people on the left who are really, really annoying, like Matt Duss, um, you know, or, or Ryan Grimm, the ones who will just say, yeah, well, Russia invaded Ukraine. And it's like, you know, people seem to think that it's their job, you know, the best thing that they can do for the Ukrainian people is to just be a little dunce, is to just overly, <laughs> just to be, just make, to make everything very simplistic. And just think uh, bad thoughts about Russia and think good thoughts about Ukraine. And it doesn't matter if, you know, the ghost of Kiev isn't real you j because it's good. It's good. I mean, it, it encourages people. So you want to believe, you know, and uh, it, I guess it, now is the time to be the most clear about it. And I really admire someone like you, but I think there's too few people like you is to just say, if you want what's best for the Ukrainians, then you're not doing what exactly we're doing, you know, then you would actually want to have diplomacy. And yes, you would have to have compromise, you know, um, because you're holding out on this, um, you know, uh, people just people in this debate, they would, what they want to do is they want to clutch their pearls. Like, for example, with Matt Duss, it's like, um, he's a LaRoucheite. And it's like, does anybody know who Lyndon LaRouche is? I don't even know who that is, you know, but it's like every time somebody says, well, there's a, they're a LaRoucheite. And it's like, okay, well, just shut your brain off. Okay, just shut your brain off. And, um, you figured out how to dismiss that person. And I just, so stupid. Once again, I come back to Matt Duss or even Ryan Grimm, but it's like, you know, for them, it's like, it's, it's one thing to be pro-war, but, you know, uh, for the wrong, you know, they want to be able to sidle up to pro-war people. But if you're anti-war for the wrong reason, well, then that's, you're totally disqualified, you know? So his tone towards, you know, you or Max Blumenthal is, you know, totally dismissive, but his tone towards, you know, my respectful colleague from the Brookings Institution, who is a <laughs> liberal internationalist who believe, has an ideology that is, you know, yeah. It's the same as any other imperial ideology. And I guess that's the final point that I really want to reemphasize, you know, maybe buck you up or buck everyone here up because I get, I've just been so, I feel stifled lately. And I live in DC. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I bike past the Ukrainian people and they have these signs that say, we're, Ukraine is fighting Russia so Americans won't have to. And it's yes. like, you know, can't I just say fuck you to them in public one time without it? <laughs> Me being the, seeing like the bad guy, but I don't. I'm very nice. Um, <laughs> but, um, the thing I want to say is that, you know what, look, the U.S. has done and is doing far worse things. Um, that, you know, Russian empire, yeah, it's an empire, but the U.S. is a global empire. Russia is a regional empire. This is a global empire. Russia's, U.S. is super empire. And the imperials, the things that Russia, America has done or, and or would do in a similar situation, um, 
you know, in Ukraine, they're not getting the Fallujah treatment, you know, and it's not that I, to say that I think Russia is good. It's to say that, you know, it, the, the overarching thing that we still have to emphasize is that, yeah, the American empire is much worse. And of course, it's much worse for its role in fomenting this conflict and using these people as pawns, you know, and, and they're like, Mag you know, remember um, in X-Men when Magneto is like, Oh, gosh, this was X-Men 3. It wasn't even a good one. But he was like, in chess, the pawns go first. And that's just the... I, I think I just think about how, you know, some, a really important moment... I'm going to close on this because I feel like I'm ranting at this point, but it, it's just such an exciting topic. But the... When I... when I, uh, it really Something that really clicked to me in, in college was just, you know, a teacher I had. His course was very illuminating, history course. But he just talked about how... You know, it's just in any particular ideology, you know, it's when people sacrifice the human for that particular ideology. And this liberal internationalism that claims to be anti-fascist is, you know, exactly, it's just that's, it's just the same. It's an ideology that justifies human destruction and death and suffering, but for some greater goal of a utopian experiment. And you know what? That's what Hitler thought. That's what any other empire thought. That's, you know, the white man's burden, the civilizing miss mission. And um, we should stop buying all of this silliness, but um, I guess, yeah, you know, let's hope cooler heads prevail. But, you know, I don't know, Something there's something about the people being in charge not being as smart as they really should be, or as, you know, uh, honest. <laughs> but anyways, keep on keeping on. Thanks, Eric. Thank you. And, um, yeah, you know, look, those protesters apparently were from the LaRouche movement, and I, I avoid the LaRouche movement like the plague. But I'm not going to fault anyone for, um, and I'm not going to dismiss anybody who's raising a legitimate issue, no matter who they are. And um, they're trying to call out a progressive lawmaker who's voted to give billions of dollars to the military-industrial complex to fuel a really horrible proxy war. And uh, I don't care who delivers that message. You know, like much like there are plenty of uh, war criminals whose uh, records I find abhorrent. But you know, but for example. I'm not going to not quote them if they say something useful. Like Robert McNamara was against NATO expansion in the 1990s. And, of course, he was heavily involved in, in Vietnam. So am I not going to quote him because he's a mass murderer? No. Um, either a opinion has, has merit on its, on its own merits or it doesn't. And uh, people trying to dismiss pe uh, protesters based on who they're affiliated with is... Is, is juvenile, and exactly, if you wanted to play the, the, the guilt by association game, then, um, as you say, people like Matt Duss, who's, who, who was the advisor to Bernie Sanders on foreign policy, although not anymore, he moved on to a, a, a think tank. Um, he's in league with uh, Lindsey Graham and Mike Pompeo. I mean, it's pretty much the exact same position. You know, they just say it for different reasons. Uh, liberals dress it up as somehow being a progressive proxy war and defensive values. But whereas neocons are more honest and just say that, you know, if we fight Russia, if, if we arm Ukraine, they will fight Russia to the last person, as, as Lindsey Graham said. So that's, that's where we're at. All right. Thanks for the call, Eric. Uh, Jay. Aaron, long time. Hi there. And first time caller. Uh, really appreciate what you continue to do. I'm actually in Moscow. I was uh, watching a video of Joe, Joe Biden today, new, new video of him eating ice cream. And uh, somebody asks him, are you concerned about the strength of the U.S. dollar? And he says, uh, <clears throat> you know, eating his ice cream 
in between uh, bites of uh, delicious ice cream, looking really pleased with himself, he answered, uh, no, I'm not concerned about the U.S. dollar. I'm concerned about everybody else. And, and, and he's, he's, he's so calm and peaceful uh, with that thought because this is the essence of uh, the U.S. foreign policy is to contain everybody else, make sure everybody else is not doing as well as you are. And, and, you, and, and you ensure that by force. Uh, <clears throat> you say it's a scary time. You know, I, here in Moscow, I'd say it's a exciting time. So it's... Well, so tell us about it. What's the mood like there? Um, and look, the... Well, the, I watch the, a lot of Russian the, propaganda. So yeah. it's, it, it's, it's really yeah. aggressive right now. They're, uh, they're just openly talking about uh, big strikes on like Washington and London and Brussels. Uh, people are fed up, at least, uh, you know, the Kremlin propaganda people. So yeah. they're, they're pushing in that direction. I, I don't know how much of this is bloviating. I think uh, in the West, there's a lot of uh, panic being spread about nuclear Armageddon, as Biden calls it. Yeah. So that's been going on for about a month, I think. I, 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 I wouldn't buy into it too much. I think it's uh, it's it's a way of them providing a way out uh, for when this uh, whole situation finally resolves itself, so that they you know they could they could say oh you know we managed to uh, avoid nuclear disaster with Russia, so we right. uh, we 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 did a good uh, job here <clears throat> navigating the uh, complex foreign policy and ag aggressive Putin's uh, war on Ukraine. So uh, I can see that, you know, you know someone us. like, yeah, I, I can see that someone like Liam Panetta, who's the former defense secretary and CIA chief, he recently wrote that according to intelligence analysts who he's in touch with, that they've raised the chance of a, a nuclear strike by Russia to be 25 percent. And um, so that could just be uh, a part of an effort to set the stakes very, very, very high so that the U.S. can when it finally you know, back out of the box yeah. yeah, yeah. But at the same time, exactly. you know, the problem is it's it, it's hard to be fully confident in that because look, the fact is this is a very dangerous war. The U.S. and Russia are on opposing sides, and in, in these situations, horrible things can happen very quickly. You know, so you never know. But but I, but especially I with these exercises this week, I wasn't aware that exactly. Russia's having exercises. I knew that NATO was with the nuclear, uh, yeah. the, the dummy nuclear rounds that they're going to fire. Apparently, yeah, yeah, it's um, it's madness. It's madness. And what what, about one more stories? thing, let, let me ask you yeah. quickly: What about these stories that we hear in, in U.S. media of? Um, Russians being snatched off the street to go uh, being shipped off to yeah, war. Yeah, there's some truth to that. L like in a lot of propaganda, it's based on a kernel of truth. So there is uh, uh, more checks outside of metro stations uh, hmm. of police checking, you know, military-aged people, making sure they're not, you know, hiding from the draft. Uh, and and there, there were instances where, um, uh, you know, cops were... Uh, on suspicion that, that somebody was uh, mobilized and that they were just avoiding mobilization. They were uh, given a uh, mobilization notice on the street. Some, some truth to it, uh, but I, I don't know. I, I don't know. Like, nobody stopped me, for example, and I'm not...
you know, I'm in a particular situation. I'm not too concerned about it myself, so I can look at it kind of uh, objectively. Um, uh, but, 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 but I, I, I you know, so I, may, may, maybe there, you know, there's like increased enforcement of um, people's documents, that that type of thing. So right. I've seen some photographs, but I, I don't know, I don't know for sure, um, you know. But I, 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 I seriously, I seriously doubt it. It wouldn't be in the style of mm, how this whole operation has been conducted so far. Uh, it, it, it would be. It would be bad PR. They are, um, you know, the Kremlin and all of them. They are uh, sensitive to, to to how their actions are reflected in the media. Uh, I, I would like just one uh, very quickly uh, to sum up the relations between the West and Russia. It's kind of like a soap opera. Uh, if you listen to a Newlands interview. Um, and other places, I've heard this uh, sentiment where uh, the West helped Russia and Putin attain democracy and freedom, and Putin uh, turned away from them and left them, and so they're, uh, you know, they're justifiably upset with him and uh, aren't against, you know, uh, seeking revenge on him, so they're kind of justified in their revenge and hate for him because <laughs> he because he left them when when they tried to help all, all they tried to uh, ever tried to do you know especially during the nineties was was to help them attain you know democracy and freedom uh, and uh just a reminder that um this whole Euro ukraine saga is, is nothing new it's been uh going on at least since uh world war two when um you know, there was a government, Ukraine government in exile in Canada uh, set up after World War II, uh, where it's these Ukrainian nationalists, uh, you know, w waiting for their uh, chance to return to their homeland in U Ukraine. And uh, sure, uh, and the, finally, and the and sure, and there's a history of the CIA, you know, using the Bandera movement, the the, the Nazi collaborators. Um, Working with them, you know, starting in the 1950s, if not earlier. So, yeah, of course. Yeah, there's something very... called Operation Gladio. Yeah. That, uh... But we're not gonna we're not gonna get into that now. But thank you, Jay, for the call. Thanks, Aaron. Anything else, you, anything else you want to tell us about about life in Russia right now? Because it's not often we. It's pretty sweet, actually... man. Like I'm seeing the world around me fall apart, and I'm so glad I'm not a part of that. Everything's great. <laughs> okay. All right. Y'all, y'all should right. join uh, Russia and uh, you know do it how we do it. We, we we don't we don't you know sanction people. We don't go to war uh, far away. We we only go to war on uh, very justifiable grounds. Uh, you know when we're forced into it in every possible way. Yeah, we'll go to war with you. Okay. When you well, leave us, thank you. absolutely no choice. Got it. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your uh, perspective. Bye -bye. Okay. <clears throat> okay, Giuliano. Hey, Aaron, can you hear me? Yeah. Hey, um, so I was wondering um, if if uh, if there was a political will in Europe, some European leader, maybe Macron, the French leader, or maybe uh, I, I know the current German leader probably wouldn't have the uh, courage to do this, but if there was a political will in some NATO member country, um, would it be a possibility for that country to just say that they would block membership for Ukraine and kind of save face for D.C., um, just kind of do it through them so that 
you know, it's not the U.S. saying that Ukraine's not going to join NATO, but some other member country. Yeah, look, I think that's a very good idea. And, it, and it's, you know, it, it has been uh, France and Germany that um, have been kind of keeping Ukraine from joining NATO ever since it was promised in 2008. Like Bush, George W. Bush really wanted to pledge membership to uh, Ukraine and Georgia uh, against the advice of his own advisors like Fiona Hill. And, um, but France and Germany especially did not want to. So they came up with, with this compromise where at the NATO summit in 2008, they were going to just promise these countries NATO membership one day, but not set a timeline. And that was the compromise. And that was born out of, you know, France and Germany's objections. And they've been holding the line ever since. So, yeah, um, I think, though, now the problem with, with that is now nobody wants to be seen as sort of appeasing Russia because there's been such an effort to, you know, demonize any kind of reconciliation with Russia in any way that nobody wants to look soft, you know. And I think ultimately it's also I, – I haven't seen the courage among any of these leaders to actually really – defy the u.s and so the u.s would have to sign on to this as you say but i just don't know if i don't know if they would i do know that right before russia invaded it was reported that germany floated a proposal to ukraine that you know ukraine just declares neutrality and then it will receive security guarantees and Zelensky rejected that that was in the wall street journal so you know maybe germany could be could go the extra step and say we're going to just block this this from now on but i think uh I think nobody wants to be the face of that. And it's... Um, yeah, I think the only member country leader that has kept in contact with Putin has been Turkey so far from what I've seen. Um, but I don't know if they have the kind of pull to really make that decision without... And I don't know what the process is to get NATO members out, but I don't... I mean, whatever the U.S. says goes, I guess. But uh, I, don't, I don't know what that would look like, really. Well, I think that's a very constructive uh, proposal that you've laid out, and I hope I hope somebody in power hears it uh, because it it's a good way for everybody to get out of this mess. Okay, uh, Chris. Hey, what's up, Aaron? Hi there. Hey. Um, yeah, I um, you uh, you might have heard um, Elon Musk was making some. Um, interesting comments uh this week about um his satellites his that he um that ukraine's been using yeah um, as part of the war effort and um he seemed to suggest that um they would be or or maybe they even already were kind of um under uh, they, they were targets for uh russian um russian military strikes and um it seemed it, I thought it was interesting because I he he also seemed like he was just trying to maybe get some money out of um, out of various people by like saying that he needs help. But um, I thought that the way he said it, it he could have been kind of laying some groundwork um, or just like a public record because he expects that maybe this is like an area where there's going to be escalation um, yeah. soon. Yeah. And um and I don't I don't know much about it, but I did I did look at I started reading a little bit about it. And according to Wikipedia, the Russians have um, a, the anti-aircraft system S-500, which can hit um, targets in low, low orbit. So 
I don't know. I was just, yeah, no, I was just... I, I'm not even sure if, if also, I mean, it makes sense to me that Russia would, would be targeting uh, uh, Starlink, uh, which is what it's called. But mm-hmm. I don't even think they need to hit it with strikes. I think they can, they have some kind of system where they have like, I'm not sure how it works, but some sort of like electromagnetic way of interfering with it, with the frequency. Mm. So that could be it. But also, look, I mean, keep in mind when Musk said this, this was after he just he floated some peace ideas uh, and he got viciously mm-hmm. attacked for it, including by Ukraine. And some Ukrainian advisor told him to fuck off, you know, and uh, he was trolled. Yes, yes. He was trolled by Zelensky. So this also could have just way of him actually just responding to all the hate he got, including from Ukraine and saying, all right, well, I'm going to, I'm going to pull out, but it looks like now he's actually reversed his decision. He's going to keep, he's going to keep providing this service. Um, but whether, you know, as you raise, whether it can work, I think is a, is a separate question. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, um, I, I don't know much about the topic, but it seems very interesting to me. And, and then also, you know, the, it, 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 it seems kind of, you know, interesting that the U.S. just developed a new, I, I guess, a, officially a new branch of the military, which is the Space Force. That's right. And yeah. um, I don't know. I just I just thought I would throw out a suggestion because I know you you have the opportunity to talk to a lot of um, military experts, uh, maybe just um, ask them about about the a little bit more about the subject. I don't know. Next time. Yeah, that's a good idea. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, yeah that's OK. And. Michelle. Hey, how's it going? Good. How are you? Good. I just, I had a question about um, everyone talking about Putin potentially trying to reunite uh, the old Soviet Union. Has he actually made any statements around this? I've looked and I haven't actually found anything. Yes. What he said was... What he said was, I'm going to paraphrase. He said, anybody who doesn't um, feel sadness, or, or, or anybody who doesn't see the, the fall of the Soviet Union has, as a tra- as a tragedy, doesn't have a heart, right? So that's what's often quoted as him as as then it's interpreted to mean that he wants to reconstitute the Soviet Union. But they leave out the second part of that quote. And again, I'm paraphrasing because I don't know exactly. But he says, but anybody who wants to see the Soviet Union return has no brain. So that's the part that gets left out. Now, he's also said that the fall of the Soviet Union was the greatest tragedy uh, to ever happen. But they also, but again, what's also left out is the, what he also said is that it's because, the reason why, why, why it was a tragedy is because all of these ethnic Russians were then left without a state, you know, and, and were basically, um, you know, left out of their home country, which is, which is Mother Russia. Um, that's what he was referring to, which is just from the point of view of Russia, it's just true because look at Ukraine. There are millions of people there who identify as Russian, as ethnic Russian. And when a coup happened in 2014 and, you know, uh, the new government started banning the Russian language and, uh, arming neo-Nazis who identify with Bandera, who wants to wipe Russians off the planet, they were understandably alarmed. So it's that kind of situation that, that Putin was talking about. So the idea that he wants to, you know, reconstitute the Soviet Union comes from, I think, misinterpreting his own um, statements. And, you know, like what he said back in 2014, after Russia annexed Crimea, which, by the way, Crimea has been trying to do since the fall of the Soviet Union, you know, immediately yeah. in, the 19, in 1990 or 1991, Crimeans voted overwhelmingly to, uh, to break away from Ukraine and have been trying to join Russia at various points since then. 
So uh, anyway, so in 2014, when uh, Russia annexed Crimea, uh, Putin said that, you know, um, the rights of Russians in Ukraine have to be respected. And he also said that, you know, that, that respect for Russians' rights, equal rights, is also the guarantor of Ukraine's territorial integrity. So he actually was issuing a threat as far back as 2014, that if the rights of Russians are not respected inside Ukraine, then Ukraine's territorial integrity will also be threatened too. And finally in 2022, he's fallen through on that threat. But again, I don't think it's out of a desire to reconstitute the Soviet Union because look, for example, in Ukraine, since 2014, the two separatist regions of Donetsk and Luhansk have been trying to join Russia. And Russia actually refused to accept their calls for independence and actually encouraged them to try to, you know, stick to the Minsk II Accords, which would have kept those regions inside of Ukraine. So that right there is a good counterargument to this idea that Putin, even if he was crazy enough to, you know, want to expand the wars, um, you know, actually actually doesn't want to do it um, or, or hasn't wanted to do it historically uh, in terms of, you know, reconstituting the, the, the Soviet Union. Yeah, it just seemed like such a such a strange statement. And it keeps getting thrown around, I think, in American media, like it's a fact, which is so bizarre. Well, of course, because, of course, because you have like this is how it works every time you have to always portray your your adversary as irrational. And if they're irrational, if they're um, diabolical, like Saddam Hussein uh, and wanting to use. Uh, WMDs, like th- th- then you can't negotiate with uh, with them, and then and in that situation, then war is justified. So you always have to pre- portray these people in a really cartoonish way, and not take any of their actual concerns, and and and, and not uh, uh, not not take any, not take any of their actual concerns seriously, and not portray them in any kind of serious way that would allow for some sort of peaceful solution. Yeah. Okay. That makes perfect sense. I, my only other question came from something that the, the caller in Russia had said. He was talking about them checking people's paperwork. I was, I was wondering, I thought the draft there was just of former soldiers, whereas Ukrainian had conscription. Do I have that right? Or is that incorrect? Well, I think technically in Russia, it's supposed to be only of people with military service. But okay. it's, it sounds like to me that that's, you know, the, I think the reality on the ground, it sounds like it's, it's, that's not actually what's happening. That more people are being, you know, forced to fight than we're being told. Um, I mean, and again, I'm not there. And so I can't say that for certainly, but, but that's what it sounds like from what I've heard. And um, because people who with no military service have been, have been drafted. Now, like Russia said that they made some mistakes and that was going to be corrected, but, but who knows? But, um, you know, it, it's it's hard to know without being there. But I wouldn't be surprised if people are being forced to fight who, who really don't want to and who don't have the experience that that we're told that Russia says they will have to have to be able to fight. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't it's not like if something similar happened in America, I don't think people would, you know, be heading for the hills. It's really interesting to watch. America talk about it in that way where we are our numbers of, you know, people signing up for the military are down by 25% too. Sure. Yeah. Um, sure. 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 Yeah. Look, Russia is what it's like uh 25 million people, 30 million people. And so yeah. the numbers of people that have fled the country are in the hundreds of thousands. So, I mean, like that's to be expected. Uh, of course, people, of course, some people are going to flee, but uh, I'm sure there's, there's also a lot of people who uh, are, 
um, not resisting and are going off. And, and I think, and if that's true, then we're, then I think we're going to see a much more ferocious war pretty soon. Oh, it's so sad. Thank you. I appreciate your work. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Anthony. Hey, how's it going? Good. Good. Pretty good. Yeah, well, uh, th- I, this morning I was up so early in the morning, and so I watched C-SPAN, and my God, I was sick to my stomach. The uh, host was talking about uh, a lot of the callers. They, they were talking about 50th anniversary of the Cuban Missile Crisis, and uh, a lot of the callers were trying to you know, make the point about the Russia-Ukraine thing, just relating yeah, yeah. it to that, that we're not really in the right here as a country. And the C-SPAN was like, but they invaded, but they invaded. And it's like, okay, you're just omitting so much. I wanted to call in, but apparently I called in a couple of weeks ago and they don't let you call in twice or something. But, it, and then the next, the, she had an Atlantic council person on next after that. It was really sick, but that's just what the, the shape of it is. And same on a, I, that's what I say. Take it to their trenches, the NPR, the C-SPAN, the, shoot Twitter, their Twitter accounts and just got to fight them. I don't know, like ideal verbally, ideologically, so to speak is what I mean. But yeah. Yeah. All right. All right. Thanks. Well, I, I, the one more thing. I just uh, came back from a uh, Medea Benjamin book tour. She's, she was out here yeah. and uh, it was pretty interesting. I didn't really agree with everything. I thought it was a little soft for me, but uh, she totally endorsed the, um, protesters against AOC she was like yeah uh that's we need more of that I don't even know if she touched on the LaRouche thing but yeah so yeah yeah well look Medea is you know and Code Pink are basically keeping the anti-war movement what's left of it alive in the U.S. and uh I really appreciate her for that she's um it's crazy uh how much things have changed since George W. Bush when, you know, hundreds of thousands of people were protesting. And now it's just basically it's small groups like Code Pink, but they're keeping it alive. And hopefully, you know, their efforts will will pay off. Um, we sure need a, a movement right now. So, right, you know, and, and Medea is very tireless in, in keeping it going. Okay, thanks, Anthony. All right. Uh, armchair. Hey, Aaron. How are you doing? Good. Yeah, uh, I guess what I wanted you to ask you is regarding, so you mentioned, you know, the protesters who went after AOC, which, you know, I'm, I agree, everybody has a right to protest. Uh, but specifically, you said that, you know, we should evaluate what they're saying on its own merits. Um, so I want to ask you, why do you think that, because they're, they're essentially their whole argument uh, that they were trying to present was that arming Ukraine is wrong. You know, sending $70 billion um, to help Ukraine fight back is a wrong move. And it's somehow, you know, you know, immoral yeah. or otherwise wrong. Uh, why do you, why do you think it's, you know, that's, that's a valid criticism? Because I think uh, there are, the U S played a big role in provoking this crisis. You can go back, to the end of the, of the Soviet Union when, you know, the U.S. gives some assurances or some claims that it won't expand NATO, but then it does. And then you have the coup in Ukraine in 2014, followed by an eight-year war 
that the U.S. helps fuel and refuses to pressure Ukraine to end, even though there's a peace agreement called Minsk II, which would end it. And then before Russia invades, you have Russia laying out, laying out all these proposals that could avoid an invasion that center on, you know, stopping NATO expansion and keeping Ukraine neutral and also finally ending the war in, in eastern Ukraine that began in 2014 with the U.S. back coup. And the U.S. basically didn't take it seriously. So the U.S. had peaceful options to avoid all this and has chosen to feel conflict at every turn. And so, you know, that to me is the basic argument. But you do, but you also do agree that Russia's invasion of this is unjustified. I don't personally think Russia's invasion is justified. Yes. Yes. I I think for Russia to make the case that it, it had to invade Ukraine, even though I do think it was provoked, uh, I think it has to prove that it had no other option that, you know, it had to uh, resort to using force like this because or else something far worse would have happened. And I just don't see I don't think that case has been made. I don't think Russia's really tried very hard to make it. They don't really care about like global opinion. They just care right. about their own public, which where they control a lot of the nar- narrative because, you know, a lot of the media is, is state media. And um, I don't think they made that case. I'm open to that case being made. Um Right. So, so, you know, so if you agree, if you agree that it was unjustified, then why would it be in principle wrong for any country? I mean, it doesn't have to be the U.S., but it, the U.S. is doing it. But for well, any country to help Ukraine fight back. Yeah. Well, sure. In principle, any country, including Ukraine, has the right to defend itself. And, uh, you know, someone invades your country, you have the right to fight back, obviously. But the U.S., though, is um, a party that has huge leverage over Ukraine. Basically, Ukraine couldn't do anything really without without U.S.'s uh, permission or or at least help. And so the U.S., instead of shipping off billions of dollars worth of weapons, could just embrace the diplomacy that it's been rejecting for many years. And um, that's always an option. So the only option is not just to fight. It's also to, it, it, it's to negotiate. And at every turn, you have evidence of U.S. blocking negotiations. I mean, like multiple – I'm not sure if you've seen the stories, but like multiple sources now from the Ukrainian side from right. the Russian side and from the U.S. side have said that the U.S. basically undermined a peace agreement that was reached back in March and April. So so the principal but argument Russia, there is – okay, go ahead. But Russia is also, is, has also been uh, not open to certain deals. Like there's one, for example, there's one uh, report from um, independent Russian um, uh, news, news – um, company called Medusa, which basically said that there was um, a deal, like there was some kind of a deal that was striked in the beginning or almost in the beginning of the war, like a few days later, that would basically say that that, that was essentially that uh, Ukraine would not be part of NATO um, and it was presented to Putin and then Putin said, no, that's not enough. Okay. So it's not. So so first of all, all, just one thing, Medusa is actually not independent. It's funded by one of the NATO governments. Um, or one of the Western states. I think it's funded by Sweden or, or one of those countries, which really means probably that it's a pass-through for the U.S. I mean, that, that's how the U.S. does it. It gets other states to to fund things that it wants, and so I wouldn't be surprised if that's the case here. So Medusa is not actually technically, it, in, in terms of state funding, it's not independent. But also, that report you're thinking of, I think, was in Reuters. But if you read that article, you'll see that it says that it's not clear if Zelensky ever agreed to that same proposal. Uh, so 
it's so so they say that Russia or that Putin rejected a proposal for Ukrainian neutrality soon after uh, the invasion, but it also says that it's not clear that Zelensky and his advisors ever agreed to it. So it's not as if that was really a peace agreement; that was just a proposal that apparently was floated to Putin. But um, look, that was supposed to be in the early weeks of the war. We know that after that, in March, there was an agreement, a tentative agreement between Ukraine uh, and Russia. And according to the Ukrainian side, it was Boris Johnson who told them that we would not honor it. So basically, you have to keep fighting Russia. Right. That's what we know. But, but that, 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 was, that was one reason. But also, let, let, let's also be clear that in that same article that you're quoting from, well, not quoting from, but like you're referring to from Ukrainian Pravda, the other reason, as it was cited in the article, was because of what happened in Bucha, which basically, you know, people were really outraged and they weren't ready to... Um, have any kind of a deal with Putin after that. I got that. I guess, you know, and this is my bias here. I don't buy that. I don't buy it. First of all, um, I don't actually know what happened in Bucha. Uh, I've said I, I'm open to, uh, it's quite possible that Russia committed every atrocity that's accused of. But before I believe this stuff, I, I think there needs to be a credible, independent investigation. And there needs to be forensic pathologists to look at the bodies and to determine how long they've been out there for. And I've seen none of that. And, you know, people like Scott Ritter, who I respect, have come up with their own theories about what really happened. And I don't claim to know what happened. But I also just find there's so many times when allegations are so convenient for people who want to continue the war. Like the whole OPCW scandal. You know, we're supposed to believe there in Duma that Syria, as it's about to retake Duma, and just days after Trump said that we're no longer going to pursue regime change in Syria, that all of a sudden Syria decided to use chemical weapons uh, against a bunch of civilians. Um, which does, which just doesn't make any sense for many reasons. And it's interesting, you know, the, these chemical weapons never, ever hit the uh, armed insurgents that are actually taking Syrian territory. It's only used against, allegedly against civilians at really inopportune times for Syria. So I just, these allegations that, you know, uh, in this case, that Russia committed atrocities and that's why we couldn't make peace with them. I just, I'm skeptical of it, especially, you know, there's also, if you don't want to, if you really believe that Russia committed these atrocities in in Bucha, why would you not want to take every opportunity to prevent more atrocities? I mean, if you see what they're capable of there, like why would you not want to uh, do all you can to prevent more? Uh, well, perhaps, and, perhaps because you're able to get weapons from uh, the U.S. and you want to fight fight and you know take the territory that um they uh, annexed before you know in 2014 i mean that and that's that's another thing is i mean you you're saying this, those are allegations okay fair enough there wasn't like a um an official investigation of what's going on but you i mean first of all that's not possible during wartime and second of all there was a very credible i believe a very credible new york times article about that with uh you know uh uh like satellite photos basically showing yes, but the, how... See, but, but this is where... Okay, first of all, I actually do think... I do think that an investigation is possible during a war. I mean, that town had been uh, liberated from Russia. It was occupied by Ukraine. So there's no reason why you can't get independent forensics experts in there. And when you talk about that satellite like, imagery, look, again, see, this is where it's tough for me because everything you're saying could be 100% true. Everything Russia was accused of could be 100% correct. But then you look at that satellite company and that is like a, it's a really heavily tied um, Pentagon contractor, which is often produces satellite imagery that happened to always perfectly coincide with whatever the U.S. agenda is. And so I just, you know, and again, even if, and it, even, even if the satellite imagery is true, 
what does it actually prove? I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure. Um, it shows that bodies were lying in the streets for a certain period of time. But those bodies, again, I mean, look, the, the counter theory in Bucha. But they were, they, well, the point is, the point is that they appeared, the bodies appeared after, like during the time, like before Russians were there, there were no bodies. They appeared and then the bodies appeared. So there were like two, like there were a few images like that. Yeah, so, so, those bodies, so, so those bodies could have been people killed in fighting uh, by Russia. Uh, or, in, and the counter theory of people like Scott Ritter is that actually Ukraine executed collaborators or alleged collaborators with Russia and then used their bodies to accuse Russia of an atrocity. You know, like, well, does he have evidence of that? He does not. No, he does not. But that, that, that's his okay. theory. And, and what, what I, but the thing is, the, um, that's what I'm saying. Both sides have claims. There's not much in the way of evidence. The only evidence no, is I, that the bodies are there. And, and, and actually, Ritter, Ritter actually said, I mean, the, his main piece of evidence, you can call it that, is that from his point of view, the bodies didn't look like they'd been laying there for very long. That if you're, if you're a, a, a corpse, you're not going to look like that after lying in the street for that many days. He, to him, the bodies look like they were. Yeah, I've, I've, I've seen that. Yeah, but like, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. So, like, I don't, I don't try to evaluate these claims. I just point it like it's just when there's not certainty, I'm just not going to accept either side. That's, that's all I'm trying to say on that. And the idea that it just is, that's a reason to not uh, make a peace agreement. I just, that doesn't, I don't know. I mean, I guess that's up to everyone's interpretation, but to me, I don't, I, I don't find that convincing. I just find it very, very convenient for people who want to continue the war, especially when you have people, you know, it was said by the Zelensky side. I mean, this, this came from sources close to Zelensky that Johnson told Zelensky, if you make a peace agreement with Russia, we will not back you up. We will not give you security. No, guarantee. that's wrong. I agree with you. That's, that's, that's totally wrong. But I, I just think that it's not, it's not unreasonable for people like, I mean, if you look at the polls, most Ukrainians want to fight Russia. And in part, it's because of the atrocities that have been committed. I mean, like, Bucha is just one example. There's been many others. Again, I, I agree with you that obviously, like, there's always some tiny possibility that it was that it could have been somebody else. But I just think that, like, taking a theory from Scott Ritter, who, uh, you know, let's be honest, I mean, you, you, you present, you said that, you know, Medusa is, or this, um, you know, uh, satellite company is tied to the, to, uh, to the U.S. government in some way. Let's also call out the fact that Scott Ritter, you know, works or, you know, yeah, basically works for RT or at least used to work for, uh, for, for a long time. So it's, so it's, it's true. Like it is true. You're right. That he has a column that is published by, by RT. That's true. That's true. Look, I happen to know. I happen to know Scott, so I, you know, so I, I think I can, you know, so I'm I'm biased towards you know trusting at least his his motives. It doesn't mean I accept everything he says on faith, but I, I just don't think he's guided by like I don't think he's pro-Russian uh, or or guided, and I don't think Russia. Um, anyway, but 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 it doesn't matter. The um, I think um, I just. Uh, and look, yes, but look, let's say you're right, that the, that the polls are correct, that the vast majority of Ukrainians don't want to stop the war. They want to keep fighting Russia. OK, it doesn't obligate everybody else to be involved to the level that we are. I mean, we're responsible sure. for for our own country and our, our own choices. And just because Ukrainians, you know, let's say it's true that all Ukrainians want to keep fighting. We're not obligated to keep sending them billions of dollars worth of weapons to do sure. that. 
You know, I agree with that. But I just, I just, I just think that that's a very different argument and a different critique than what's been presented by the, you know, the anti-imperialist left and right. also the people who were who were criticizing AOC. I just think those those are very different. Um, and also to to the extent that you know you want to, I, this is the last thing I'll say. To the extent that you want to um, say that U.S. played a role in this in provoking, which to a certain extent I agree with. Um, isn't it then on us to basically clean up, help clean up our own mess and essentially say, okay, well, we've got you in this mess to a certain extent. We played a role in it. So at least we'll help, help you now to, um, you know, fight off the aggressor. Well, you know, I guess we'll disagree there. To me, that's like, you know, starting a fire uh, and that, and a house. And then instead of, you know, helping to douse it, you know, like – to pour gasoline on it, you know, that's, and obviously you'll disagree, but that's how I see it. Sure. I mean, what, at this point, if you'd help provoke a war, I think given the huge leverage the U S has, it's, it's, it's responsible for using all tools that it has to put an end to it. And the, if the U S wanted to stop this war tomorrow, it could, it could, um, Ukraine could not fight Russia without U S weapons and also U S intelligence. So if the U S I think really cared about Ukrainians, it would use its leverage to encourage diplomacy and not look, it's openly said by, by, by people like Lindsey Graham. He says, as long as we give Ukraine the weapons, then they will fight to the last person. So what kind of a policy is that using no, I mean, Ukraine he's, to he's, fight? He's, to he's, he's despicable. No, I agree with you. He, 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 I don't, I don't like Lindsey Graham, uh, but, but I have, I have reasons like, as you said, like liberals quote this in a, in a, in a, in a you know, sort of a moralistic terms. I think that Ukraine deserves help not just from the U.S., but from, from everybody. Um, I, I'm i not saying that because I want to, like, bleed Russia. I just want Ukraine to win, and that's that's it. Got it. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Well, All listen, right. thanks for calling in. I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, thanks, man. Oh, All no right. Way. Bye. All right. Uh, Pradeep. Hi, Aaron. Um, Hi there. Thank you for... Um, very insightful commentary and these uh, open debates. So for me, trying to follow this war since uh, late February and all, it's been very difficult to get some unbiased uh, commentary on this topic. Everything seems uh, very propagandistic and uh, clearly tuned towards generating certain types of emotions and whatnot, you know? Yeah. So I was, was going to ask you for some recommendations on where can I find some useful, um, intelligent debates, um, like both TV debates are. Okay, some, yeah. There was yeah. one recently. Uh, it was done in Toronto. at something called the Monk Forum, and it's with uh, John Mearsheimer and Stephen Walt versus Michael McFall, who's a former U.S. ambassador to Russia, and somebody else. And that was a very good debate about Ukraine. And in it, actually, McFall admitted that the U.S. lies. <laughs> he said the U.S. was lying about NATO. Well, he's not very smart, so I'm not surprised. Right. Yeah. He's, yeah. Well, uh, I, I appreciated his, that he was candid there. And so that, that's a good debate. And, um, you know, uh, there's also a debate from a few years ago where Stephen F. Cohen, one of my mentors, debated McFall at uh, Columbia. That was probably in... 2018 or 2019. Right. Uh, so, uh, sorry to interrupt. I mean, yeah. I I think I'm 
pretty avid um, follower of whatever happened so far. Yeah. I'm looking for something more on a regular basis. Think of like two weeks or three weeks or something like that. That way, I mean, trying to follow the um, uh, tweets and stuff is creating a lot of anxiety. You know, every right. day it yeah, seems yeah, yeah. like, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just want to like spend an hour or two, like every two weeks or so to get a good sense of where the war is at, where it's going, right. et cetera. And well, um, you know, that's that's more difficult. It's very, it's very difficult to figure out what's happening during a war. And honestly, on, on that, there's not, like, I don't have one source I can I can tell you because I just, it's, I don't feel comfortable declaring that any one place has, like, the, has the what right What about take, instead you know? of uh, five to ten people, you know? Five to ten people? Well, <laughs> you know, uh, look, um, uh, I mean, I listen to a lot of what Scott Ritter says. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I value his analysis. It doesn't mean he gets everything right, but I couldn't I just... find him on Twitter. By the way, can you? Scroll yeah, well, down? he's he's banned from Twitter. He's banned from Twitter. Oh, uh, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Because actually, he he questioned the official narrative of what happened in Bucha. I think I think that's why he got banned. Um, uh-huh. But uh, there are people, you know, anything by John Mearsheimer, who is a um, right, of course, yeah, yeah. And there is a Ukrainian pacifist. I forgot his name. But he's very prominent in Ukraine as being, you know, anti-war, and um, you know, uh, and he's good. Yeah. So you know, listen, I, I, I don't have any. I, I don't have much to tell you offhand. It's gathering news is a is a very rigorous process, and you know, I don't, I, I can't really think of, you know, much beyond that. There's also a channel called the called the Duran called the Duran um, on YouTube. Which um, can you is, spell it? The Duran, D U R A N. Oh, okay, Duran. Okay, yeah. thank you. And maybe you could put a tweet or two later when you. When it comes I'll try. To, that would be great. I'll try. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks for the call. Yeah. Hey, Aaron. How's it going? Actually, say one more site. I just remembered. Uh, thanks to my partner, Karina. So thank you for reminding me. Uh, uh, Moon of Alabama is a blog that I read regularly. And it's by a German man who I think is a army veteran of some kind, maybe even an intelligence veteran. And uh, I, again, doesn't always get it right in my opinion. For example, you know, didn't uh, think that Russia was going to invade Ukraine, just like I thought as well. So I got that, that one wrong too, but I still think it's very valuable and has a lot of, it is, is good to read to keep up on what's happening. Um, but no one has dominion over the truth. You know, that's just how it is. Okay. Sorry. If you go ahead. Hey, no problem. Uh, it's just a really quick thing, really right down at the bottom of the chat at the start, I've just put in a couple of uh, links to two Rand corporation strategy documents, which go back to maybe preceding 2018. And it's basically, when people are wondering, look, how, how, how is you, the U.S. and its allies deciding to do whatever it's doing even right now? Those two strategy documents essentially lay out everything that we're doing in detail in, across multiple fronts. And if you look at it, it essentially is constructed as a whole how to provoke Russia in every single way, including yes. Yes. The, open, the open escalation of the nuclear doctrine of mm-hmm. the U.S. in every mm-hmm. form. Yeah. And it's you look at it and just go, why is no why is no media outlet just literally laying this down and say, never mind yeah. Newland yeah. saying that this is straight out of the Russian playbook one oh one. It's like, mm-hmm. no, here's the US 
foreign policy playbook for Russia. Yes. Everything yes. we're doing is in here. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've written about this document a few times on my Substack, stack, uh, substack.com. And yeah, look, the top ways they have, uh, to overextend and unbalance Russia are stopping the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, right? That's the best way they say to weaken Russia's economy is stopping Nord Stream 2. That's like the first step. So you can check that one off the box because that recently was achieved by blowing up the pipelines. And then the other top way to extend Russian militarily is to provide um, more lethal aid to Ukraine to force Russia to intervene, uh, which you also can, can check off. So yes, this has definitely been a Russian strategy, uh, sorry, a, a U.S. strategy. And it's, as you say, it's not the Russian playbook. It, it's, it's the U.S. playbook. Yeah, and there's one, there's one very odd thing. It, right in the conclusion, the RAND Corporation says, um, uh, let's have a look. It says, Russia's greatest vulnerability in any competition with the U.S. is its economy, which is comparatively small yeah. and highly dependent on energy exports. Russia's greatest anxiety stems from stability and durability of the regime. But it, and it also says that it's basically the greatest strengths are in the military and info war realms. Well, if you think about it, Rand seems to have it the wrong way around, right? Russia's actually economy for natural resources seems to be doing fine. So it's not the weakest part. And it's actually quite poor in the info realm. You know, it's not very good at fighting the propaganda war. So if that's the quality of Rand's strategy conclusion, then it's no wonder kind of like things look like they're going to hell in a handbasket for us. Yes, there was there, someone recently did a comparison of economist headlines from this year where like earlier on in the year, the economist was like, Russia's economy is done for. It's over. And now <laughs> recently, the headline in the economist was something like uh, as Europe falls into a deep economic crisis, Russia climbs out of one, you know, um, and that's where it's at. The, the, the effort to destroy Russia's economy just hasn't worked. It has not worked. Yeah. And so, um, you know, and now it's Europe that's really that's really paying the price. Exactly. That's the lack of accountability in the media playing out there, isn't it, really? Yes. And in the I'm going to put in the chat a link to my recent article, which which quoted some of the passages you're referencing about when it comes to what Rand uh, proposed for uh, for Nord Stream 2 in terms of sabotaging it. I go into it there. Thank you Thanks for the call. Work, and I wasn't paid to place these uh, links back to Aaron's old work. I just want to stress that. OK. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers, buddy. All right, take care. Cheers. Uh, Amanda. Hi, Aaron. Hi. Um, so I think I remember back at the beginning of this whole thing. So this is my dumb question for today for my ignorance of, of foreign affairs. So I think I remember them telling us, them being the media and such, that one of the reasons why we were doing sanctions was to hopefully get the Russian people to rise up and knock Putin out of power. Is that, was that an excuse that I remember? Is that true? Yes. So, you know, and this is quoted a lot in, in my articles in 2013, someone named Carl Gershman, who was then the head of the national endowment for democracy, which is a U.S. intelligence cutout. He writes in the Washington post that uh, Ukraine is the biggest prize. And that if the U S can pull Ukraine firmly into the Western camp, then that will redound over to Russia and Putin might be overthrown uh, if he loses Ukraine. And uh, so, yeah, the strategy has long been to basically try to use Ukraine to weaken Russia and bring about Putin's overthrow. Has, has, has a strategy like that ever worked? Because if it has, 
I think the people of the United States are mad enough to maybe get out in the streets and push the people that are in power in this country out. <laughs> well, uh, you know, that's a good question. I mean, look, you know, it worked. Um, I mean, certainly the U.S. has been successful in overthrowing governments before. Uh, something like weakening a neighboring state to overthrow a leader. No, I don't know if that's ever worked before, but it's, you know, it makes sense. It makes sense why they try it, because Ukraine's so geostrategically and culturally important to Russia that, um, you know, it makes sense. But uh, look, in terms of the anger here, it's um, uh, it's a very divided country, and uh, it's been made worse by things like Russiagate, where, uh, you know, the the president that about half the country voted for was or at least half the electorate voted for, was undermined with a fake claim of being a Russian asset. And uh, that's in turn helped fuel this current crisis here because it made diplomacy with Russia very difficult. And, you know, recall that Trump got impeached when he briefly froze some weapons to Ukraine, as if that was the most sacrosanct thing to do, is just arm Ukraine for a proxy war that we started. So it's, um, there's a lot of challenges to, to stopping this war. The last thing I'd like to say is I, it, Code Pink is is holding up the anti-war movement, but also this week the United National Anti-War Coalition is coordin- not coordinating, but like overseeing a whole bunch of um, protests. I was at one yesterday in Oakland. There's like 20 more happening in the next week. And I dropped the link in the chat already to go and see if there's an action in your area. And if there isn't, you can organize one. It's real easy. But I just wanted to say that there are more people starting up the anti-war, restarting up their anti-war protest organizations. And I think we're going to start seeing more of that across the country. At least Cool. Awesome. Thank you, Amanda. And, and drop a link in the chat if you can. Okay, uh, Veronica, and then we're going to, I apologize to everyone in the chat. We might not get to everybody's calls because we're going to have to wrap up soon. So apologies in advance if I don't get to. Veronica, go ahead. Hi, Aaron. Uh, thanks for having me on. Um, so I have a two-part question, really. Um, so first of all, I was wondering what your thoughts on what, a potential, what potential alternatives, what your ideal alternative would be and what you think uh, – an alternative would end up being um, in the hypothetical scenario of NATO being dissolved, what would your ideal uh, alternative to NATO be or no alternative at all? And what do you think would happen in the hypothetical scenario of NATO uh, dissolvement? And then also, um, I was wondering your thoughts on uh, with Ukraine being used as a client state pretty much by uh, U.S. government. um, I was wondering uh, if you... Uh, per, if you see any parallels between that and with uh, with Congress not really having any concern with um, where weapons are ending up that are being shipped into Ukraine uh, and really little concern over uh, neo-Nazi uh, factions like the Azov Battalion incorporated into Ukraine's armed services, if you see any parallel with that indifference towards uh, the prior um, CIA and MI6 arming and funding of the Mujahideen, uh, the predecessor of the Taliban um, in Afghanistan, if you see any parallels with that at all. Uh, okay, so uh, the first question is, what do I see as an alternative to NATO? Well, look, um, 
people like Gorbachev have floated an idea of just a, a European-wide security pact where everybody is in alliance with everybody. So there's no inter-European wars, which, which makes sense to me. I mean, if there's going to be a war in that continent, it's probably going to come not from, like, I don't know, uh, some other continent, but inside Europe, I mean, as the last century showed. So why not everybody enters into a mutual pact, including Russia? Um, that seems to be a much, be much better idea than a hostile military alliance surrounding Russia, where any one member that gets in a conflict with Russia is then going to pull everybody else into a war and end and life on the planet. So the current system just doesn't make any sense to me, um, especially since the Warsaw Pact no longer exists. I mean, it ended, it ended with the Soviet Union. So why, why have its um, rivals still in existence? It doesn't make sense. And as Richard Sakwa says, he's a scholar. He wrote a book called Frontline Ukraine. I've interviewed him a few, a few times on my show, Pushback. He says uh, NATO exists to confront threats created by its own existence. And I, th I think that's exactly right. So basically NATO is a threat racket. It just constantly creates problems that it then has to solve, you know, so better for it not to exist. And in terms of the second question, is there a parallel between arming Azov and arming the Mujahideen in, in Afghanistan? Yes, and I've, I'd even draw a more uh, recent example of Syria, where the U.S. knew that they were arming an insurgency dominated by Al-Qaeda. And there's, you know, my favorite quote on this comes from Jake Sullivan, where he wrote to Hillary Clinton in February 2012. He wrote, Al-Qaeda is on our side in Syria. And that was when the Pentagon was producing intelligence reports saying that the insurgency is dominated by Al-Qaeda and other sectarian death squads, and that that's the side that the U.S. was supporting. So the U.S. knew all this, uh, but they didn't care because even though al-Qaeda had attacked the U.S. 10 years earlier, that doesn't matter in the eyes of these people making policy. It was more important for them to overthrow a government that was disobedient in Syria. And similarly, in Ukraine, it's more important than arming a military that includes a neo-Nazi battalion. Um, it's more important that we use that military to weaken Russia, to pursue regime change there and it's gotten so ridiculous that you know four years ago after you know some effort this wasn't easy but finally john conyers and rokana got an amendment passed banning u.s assistance arming and training to the azov battalion so any u.s military aid going to ukraine could not reach the azov battalion and that was four years ago and fast forward to today where just a few weeks ago Members of Congress, including Adam Schiff, welcomed a delegation from Ukraine that included Azov Battalion members. So we've gone from banning assistance to the Azov Battalion to uh, looking the other way as we arm them and also even welcoming them, welcoming them into Congress. It's, it's pretty extraordinary. Lastly, um, with that said, what do you what are your opinions on Ro Khanna and um, him not being as vocal in his criticism as he uh, was just a few years back about uh, the Azov Battalion? What do you think is behind his his uh, lack of of uh, vocal concern anymore? I think it's someone. I think it's an example about there's just no one who operates on principle inside Congress. There's no there's no effort to operate based on ethics and principle. Everything is subordinate to political consideration. So obviously, Ro Khanna feels for his own political survival, he can't adopt the same position he had four years ago when he banned assistance to Azov. Um, and it's, so it's just a combination of cowardice 
and not having principle. And, you know, I, like I've never, you know, I'm not in that world and I know there's all, you know, I'm sure there's all kinds of things you tell yourself like, well, if I just do this, then I can get this for my constituents and I can pursue this agenda that's important to me. That's good for the world. I'm sure there's any which way to justify it to yourself. But uh, I, to me, it's given the stakes of this war. I mean, I understand why people have to make compromises and be hypocritical and go back on previous stances. Like that's the world we're in and everyone or most people have to do that in some ways in their own lives. But on something like this, which is so important, a proxy war where the U.S. has a major role and where there's diplomacy and where there's diplomacy that's being sabotaged, how you can sit back and support the proxy war and reverse all your old positions. To me, it, it makes no sense. But, um, you know, that's why I'm not in Congress. I'm, I'm just a journalist. I agree. I've, I'm very disappointed in Ro Khanna over the years. I've, I'm in the Bay Area. He's not my representative, but he's right below me. I'm yeah. in Alameda County. So, but yeah, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for but, your, for your, thank you. But look, thank you. Thank you. And the more these politicians hear from people, I do think it has an impact. I do. Uh, it's not nice to be yelled at and told that you're bringing us to nuclear war as I, as a, as AOC was earlier this week. And I do think that these things have an effect. I do. I, like I, I've heard before, for example, even just like when progressive lawmakers are criticized on Twitter, like I've heard about them complaining about it and being a bit upset by it, you know? So it does make a difference to tell them your opinion if you don't agree with, with what they're doing. Okay. Uh, next caller. Hey, Aaron, how are you doing? I guess Hi there. everybody asked, but uh, I was curious if you listened to Katie's show and uh, Norman Finkelstein's argument about Russia's invasion. Uh, did you catch it at all or not at all? I, th- I caught some of it. So, what did, so Norman, Norman is of the opinion that Russia had no other choice, or, or, or at least that Russia's invasion was legally justified. Well, not exactly. So basically he goes, okay, it is a war of aggression, so it breaks international law. But yeah, because of the historical suffering of like world war yeah. two and the 27 yeah. million people that died there yeah. is some yeah i don't know exactly how to put it but some greater well something that trumps international law essentially uh right and yeah he he doesn't make a judgment if it's a wise decision or not he's like he left it to russia yes but I, yes so i think this was the first time i heard the argument that was somewhat persuasive that that might be well, it's horrifying, and I hope it ends as soon as possible. But that was at least somewhat persuasive because, like this argument of yeah, these republics are truly independent, it doesn't really make sense. I think, objectively speaking, so I was just right. curious if yeah, what your feeling is. And he asked the question essentially for the people that go, okay, uh, it was provoked, but it's not justified. And his question is, what exactly? was Russia to do because they have been quite yes. reasonable well, for eight years. I've yes. And I agree that they've, that they, Russia was trying to resolve this peacefully. But the question for me is, you know, did they exhaust all options that were peaceful? And I don't think so. They could have, for example, used their pipeline coercion, um, you know, shut off the gas, say like, we can't, this isn't tenable where, you know, you're all sitting idly by and letting this, war happened where, you know, Russians are being killed in the Donbass and you, you, you need to pressure Ukraine to implement the Minsk Accords. And, so, and if not, we can't supply you with gas. I mean, why not try that? Is that not preferable to sending off people to die and to kill people? 
Um, I think it is. And also, why not go to the UN and say, we need a peacekeeping force for the, for the Donbass and uh, let the U.S. veto that. At least if the U.S. vetoes that, you can say we tried to protect, you know, but now we need to act because our, our people in the Donbass are being slaughtered, you know? Um, I, I really, you know, again, I'm, I'm open to the argument that Russia really had no other choice. This was their best option. If they hadn't acted, then Ukraine was going to launch some kind of invasion into Donbass. There's people who point to the fact that right before Russia invaded, there was a huge increase in shelling coming from the Ukraine side into the Donbass side, um, you know, up into the thousands of ceasefire violations. And that is what is said to be a uh, uh, sort of a first step towards a looming invasion by Ukraine, because like what you do before you invade a territory is you just bombard it with artillery to to, to weaken the defenses of the, of the territory you're going to invade. And so, you know, maybe that's true, but I just think Russia needs to make a more convincing case. And I just haven't seen it. I haven't seen them try to make it really, at least from what I've seen. So I'm open yeah. to it. I just haven't seen it yet. I don't think they try to make that case, but most points sound like Twitter, right? Not like a genuine thing that could have resolved it without war. It would have just meant the war would have happened in six months after some UN Well, votes. but it, it's, it's still your responsibility, I think, to exhaust all your diplomatic options. I mean, that's, that's what I believe. Again, you know, you're sending people off to die and to kill, you know? So I agree. You do like, that, I agree. I oppose the war. I don't. Yeah. But like my question then is like, what would be something that would be acceptable to Ukraine and the US in the background? And I don't see it. I don't see it now. Well, even maybe after the may, war started. May, well, look, uh, maybe look, Ukraine, it looks like was close to making a deal with Russia until the sabotage. Yes. And so, but to, but so then for Russia, though, I have to think about, so what can Russia do to best increase its standing? And I think that also means, you know, for, for its own interest there is to exhaust all diplomatic options. And, um, and look, it hasn't helped that, like, we've seen people, you know, I think some Russian officials have said that you see like the bio, like the bio labs prove that we had to invade. And I just think that's, you know, that's like, that shows a lack of, um, confidence in their initial claims about why they had to invade is if, if now you're shifting to bio labs, I, th I think they cited that as a reason why they had to invade afterwards. When also it's not even clear to me what actually the nature of these bio labs are. So I, I find the Russian justification shifting a little bit and, 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 and sketchy. And I just don't think they've made their case. Yeah, I agree. But yeah, I just still don't see a diplomatic solution. I, I mean, yeah. Like desperately looking for one, but I don't see anything that will well, be one was close. everybody. One was close. It's it's premised on neutrality for Ukraine, and, but it's uh, not accepted by the U.S. And like that's I know, like... yeah, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> so I then, know. Yeah. so what would yeah. be acceptable to the U.S. Like like decolonization well, of Russia? Is that like the only well, thing that yes, would be acceptable? Thing, I think the U.S. is really counting on the fact that you know they they want to bleed Russia for as long as they can. And they're going to hope that, that that's going to foment enough unrest in Russia to overthrow Putin. I, I think that's their strategy, as far as I can detect it. But um, I, uh, it just means, yeah, it's, it, it is very depressing. It certainly is. And now Russia, of course, is going to be, I think, a lot less willing to compromise, given now that it's annexed these territories. I don't see them giving them back. So for me, just Ukraine's position gets even worse. But again, I, I don't understand. Maybe they have some secret ace up their sleeve that we're not aware of. I don't know.
<laughs> we'll see. Um, we got to move on. So thank yeah, you. Yeah, go for it. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Okay. Song. And if you're there, there's a mute button you press. It should be on your bottom left to unmute yourself. And if not, we'll move on to Tim. Hey, Aaron. Hi. Hi. Um, great recommendations for Pradeep. Uh, I think you missed a couple that I think you've even done uh, some interviews with Jack Bode. Uh, you know, the ex-Swiss. Uh, oh, yes. Very yes. intelligent yes. guy. Yeah. Thankfully, he only writes a long piece every month, so that might be really helpful. Yep. Um, and, of course, Douglas McGregor um, is, you know, I think by far the best military source. And I think, you know, if you're going to have a bias, I think, you know, sticking to people with a military background is probably a lot of really helpful in this whole mess because... Yes, it, and if we're if we're... If we're if we're also if we're on that um, that wavelength of, of military people, also Colonel Daniel Davis is also pretty good too, um, and he writes. He's at the think tank Defense Priorities, I think, and and he, he's good. Mm. Thanks. That's a new one. Uh, yeah. Less sleep for all of us. I just wanted to ask you something. Um, you know, I have a theory that a lot of this is kind of traveling on a thick grease of kind of during chauvinism um you know i'll give you a very simple example of this you know i think if you if you think that the maidan uh you know revolution of dignity in quotes um it was you know legitimate even though it overthrew a democratically elected government and basically trashed the constitutional kind of integrity of the country um then you know, the revolt of people in the East, you know, is is even more, uh, you know, justified on the same basis, right? But th it, that's never perceived like that for some reason. And I think, um, do you see what I'm getting at? Like, I, I think the, the only reason that we can sell these ridiculous narratives to ourselves is just basically because, you know, we think, you know, the West is is somehow superior and therefore the whole idea that, despite the fact that it was completely unaffordable and I, that's from a Brookings Institute article that I could send you if you want, um, you know, that uh, all people want to become part of the EU and want to become part of the West. And, you know, that's just yeah. chauvinism. You know? yeah, well, sure, sure, sure. The, the, the whole Ukraine policy is premised on erasing those inside Ukraine who um, have ties to Russia and consider themselves Russian. And we're supposed to pretend they don't exist. And we're supposed to pretend that it's okay for, them to be have their language banned and for you know the the odessa massacre in may 2014 where dozens of people who were protesting the maidan coup were rounded up and burned alive and the impact that that had on uh ethnic russians in in ukraine we're supposed to just forget all that because they don't count they're unworthy victims and same with syria like you have like like, like the u.s found you know uh, a tiny uh, exiled opposition and then people inside Syria, you know, uh, in, in the in the rural Sunni areas mostly, who were frustrated with the government, and were willing to um, take up arms, and were willing to you know to take up arms for money because you know yep. the U.S. and Saudi Arabia and Qatar came in with a lot of money and just bought people off, 
And so they found people who were willing to do their bidding, but then we're supposed to you know, only see them as Syrians and forget the vast majority of the country, which didn't want to live under uh, you know, sectarian death squad, which is, which is who the U.S. side like, was backing. Like, they just don't exist. Um, and they only ex- you can only know they exist if you really go visit the country. You know? So when I went to Syria, I realized just uh, how many people we just never hear about because we're not allowed to hear about people who are being subjected to our policies. We're only allowed to hear about those who are, who are pursuing them. Yeah, and I mean, it points up one other, and I'll try and make this really quick. Um, it points up, up one other thing that I keep hearing that just sounds totally discordant to me. The idea that Russia could somehow take on the juggernaut of um, Western kind of PR slash NGOs slash corrupted media and so forth and win is just totally unrealistic. I mean, if we can pursue the kind of insane policies that we pursued in Syria and uh, Ukraine, and then, you know, I could go on to the rest of it as well. Um, and people are convinced that we are somehow the good guys in these contexts. I mean, that that's a demonstration of the amount of, you know, basically uh, propaganda we're living under. And yet the whole, you know, the... So th- these these kind of criticisms of Russia for not pursuing a uh, an attempt to somehow break through that, despite the fact that RT has been you know um, has been banned, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, just strike me as kind of hollow and ridiculous. You know, well, I I don't expect Russia to like win the information war, but I think they could. I just don't think they c- care as much about Western opinion. Um, I don't think they, they care. Shouldn't. They and, should. And I, well, okay. Well, that's okay. Well, you know, that's one way to look at it. I, I think, um, you know, and look, maybe there's just no, nothing they, they, they could say matters, but you know, look, um, why not put, you know, look, most people in the West haven't heard of the, hadn't heard of the Donbass before February. Right. Mm-hmm. There wasn't a real effort by Russia to like highlight the suffering of the people in the Donbass and, and they could have tried, you know, they could have tried. Uh, I'm not saying it would have worked, but they could have tried. But the fact that most people had never heard of it before the war happened, so ever, most people think that the war just began when Putin invaded and then not in the eight years prior when 14,000 people died. I mean, that's, you know, like you can say that it doesn't matter that Russia wouldn't have, it, it, Russia wouldn't have been able to break the Western propaganda wall, but I think they should have tried. I don't, I don't, I, I mean, but I don't follow try, And that's what our, that's what RT is about, right? But. But that's, yeah, but it, but even on our t- look, but th- that's not the only. Pl- I mean, why not take this to the UN? Like I said, why not try to get a peacekeeping mission in the Donbass and bring, you know, victims? I don't. I, look, I didn't follow Russia's actions too closely, but I just don't think they made that much of an effort to get this in front of Western audiences. And and, and uh, I, you know, I think that's. I mean, th- it's their right to you know, like do what they want. But to me. I do think they under, underestimate um, how, and, and this I think reflects the fact that they're, you know, Russia controls the media at home, but that, you know, that if they had uh, made this more of an issue before, that maybe that could have swayed some segment of the U.S. public to, you know, put pressure on, on the U.S. government to resolve the issue and not risk war over it. You know, I don't know. Look, maybe I'm wrong, but I, I think it was worth at least trying. That's all I'm saying. I mean- Stephen Cohen had a, had some good points about this, and one of them was, you know, 
the simplification of the media landscape in Russia is actually pretty uh, preposterous, right? In the sense that there was way more, there's way more um, kind of back and forth about Ukraine in 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 the Russian media than there was in U.S. media, right? Um, right. Okay. Yes. 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 I and, know. Fair enough. Look. Tim, but I have to go. So I'm going to take the last caller and thank you for calling. Okay, Bobby, you're the last caller. And Bobby, if you're there, there's a uh, mute button on the bottom left. It should be the, that's where it should be to unmute yourself. And if not, we will wrap the show. All right. Well, that'll do it. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. I'll be back here next time, next Sunday, and also back here tomorrow with Katie Helper at 11 a.m. Eastern time. And have a great rest of your evening. Thank you for joining me.